Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. Hello, lovely, lovely listeners. Thank you so much for being here today. I am delighted and privileged to introduce you to Gabriella Houston, an author of adult and children's fiction books. Her latest book is titled The Bone Roots. It is an adult fiction book that draws heavily from Slavic mythologies and also her time as a child in the wild and untamed and beautiful Polish Lake District. While the folk and fairy tales of any culture are often known for their rather simple storylines and their black and white, good and evil characters, uh, the opposite is true of Gabriella's book, The Bone Roots, in which nothing is simple. In fact, Gabriella presents us early on with two mothers who might be considered morally gray by literary critics, but I prefer to think of as simply very realistic, complicated characters who seek ferociously to protect their children, but often uh, instead injure both their children and others, despite those uh, noble motives. And rather than presenting uh, what we might call a fairy tale romance, Gabriella actually introduces something much better, which is um, hopeful, perhaps even aspirational, I would say, masculine-feminine relationships that I did not expect to find in a book that was otherwise maybe heavy or dark or foreboding. And while Gabriella writes with nuance, she also speaks in today's conversation with me uh, in a nuanced way, um, as you would expect from a thoughtful writer of a complicated tale. We dive into questions like the importance or the meaning of mythologies to cultures, particularly Slavic mythologies to the Polish culture. We go into quite a few topics, even one that I had consciously decided to avoid when I wrote the questions. We dive a little bit into uh, adoption and relationships relationships between adoptive and adopted parents, or rather adoptive parents and adopted children. And of course, as with all episodes of The Storied Recipe, Gabriella's reflections are deeply personal. She talks about her own grandparents and uh, their relationship, which was perhaps the model for that uh, aspirational um, relationship uh, in the book that I mentioned earlier. She talks about the sacred times, the quiet times that she spent with them in that forest of the Polish Lake District, hunting with her grandfather and cooking with her grandmother. And then, of course, in keeping with every episode of The Storied Recipe also, Gabriella shares with us a delicious and meaningful recipe to her, a Polish pasztet, which is a pate, that she and her grandmother would make together with whatever her grandfather had hunted in those woods. It's an episode where I learn a lot about cooking, I learn a lot about culture, and I'm challenged to think about a lot of things in different ways. It's an episode that embodies everything I like about the storied recipe, and I'm just thrilled to share it with you today. So again, thank you so much for being here. And now I will turn it over to Gabriella. Hi, Gabriella. How are you? I'm good, Becky. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you so much. I know this is weeks later than we had originally discussed. <laughs> no, it's fine. I was uh, laughing with Caroline, especially with the kind of uh, last uh, mix-up about like what time we're meeting. I was thinking, but there's some kind of a 
of confusing hex on, on a meeting. <laughs> I should probably just come here like surrounded with by like salt circle or something. <laughs> just, like, show it records. <laughs> right. It's like, a, a, okay, now this is strange. Now my computer is doing weird things. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can hear you. Okay. Yes. It's like, a. Um, how do you say it? Like the, like the witch that you have it's in your... Kada. Akada, <laughs> as, as like you said, hexed <laughs> our, um, our conversation, but we're overcoming here. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm very happy uh, to be here. It's just uh, your, your, your podcast and your blog just seems so so cool, but uh, I'm, I'm very glad that it kind of worked. Well, I'm I'm lucky to do it, and I'm sitting here with my copy of The Bone Roots, um, which, Gabriella, I really, really loved. I completely, I think I finished it in two days to be honest. Oh, this is the finest compliment. (laughs) It was excellent. And part of it, I think for me is because I've always um, loved fairy tales, but you get to a point in your life where, you know, you've kind of, you think plumbed the depths. Like I had read, you know, the Grimm's anthologies and the Hans Christian Andersen anthologies, you know, and this introduced me to a whole new world of folk and fairy tales that was like both familiar, but also really, really new. Um, all of these stories and these types of beings were really new to me. And it was it was so fascinating. Oh, I'm so glad. It's, um, you know, Slavic mythology is still not very well known um, mm. in the West and actually in, in the Slavic countries as well. It's just, it feels like we're only now kind of really rediscovering some of that. Um, uh, some of those sort of cultural aspects it was just not fashionable I suppose at least in Poland uh, at a certain time to be looking back in that way mm-hmm. um it was just all about the kind of the new and you know for me like being brought up in the nine uh in the 90s as well mm-hmm. um it was like a change of system and it was like you know brand new kind of capitalist sort of opportunities and the um uh the kind of autocratic regime has mm. been thing so it, it's just sort of we were trying to sort of feel more modern i think and mm. uh, everything to do with a folk culture culture and and uh, uh you know the sort of fairy tales by mm-hmm. extension was seen as kind of um it, it just sort the of belonged ways. to the old ways, but it, it, not mm. just old ways. It's just it wasn't seen as sort of you know the like the direction we wanted to go. Like we wanted to be seen as this modern, sleek sort of you know right, uh, right. country. But it was, um, and now there there is a big movement, and uh, there's a, mm. a a great deal of interest in that uh, in that part of the culture. I mean, some of it coming from a great place, some of it coming from more sort of nationalistic place. But mm. I'm just glad because there are such amazing stories, and uh, so many of them carry such. Um, interesting sort of lessons but I think Mm. it's it's Mm. worth sort of looking at it well it is and I'm we're going to discuss this a lot but you had in a lot of ways quite a modern story especially I thought in terms of the relationships that you Mm -hmm. um discussed and and we'll get to that but as long as we're on this topic I I do actually have a question that might inform us like as we go into the conversation about 
your recipe and your life in this book, mm-hmm. which is, um, well, I find it interesting that, like you just described, that the slobs felt they needed to um, make a break from fairy tales. Whereas, you know, as you say here in the West, really, you know, with Disney and everything, the West embraced fairy tales and kind of um, viewed them as like an escape, as a fun and enchanting. Enchanting is actually the Disney word, right? Like they push that word (laughs) way, you know, way to just imagine things and go back to this time of beauty and romance. And I'm wondering if part of the reason the West was willing to embrace those is because they viewed that there was no overlap between fairy tale and the real world, except for maybe in the romantic world, right? You would wish for a quote fairy tale ending, you know, but there was no such thing as magic and things like that. And I'm wondering if the Slavs did believe these folktales, do believe these folktales a little bit more if there's more of like a a culture of superstition and stuff that they wanted to divorce themselves. Does that make sense? I mean, okay, so uh, there's a lot of questions in one. Uh, So let me just sort of um, wind back a little bit. Thank you. I think it's very important to make distinction um, Mm. because, you know, when you, you say the West, you know, when we say the West, people mean Europe and the States, whereas those are, you know, like different European countries and the States, where those are like, uh, it's a variety of very different cultures. Yeah. So it's very difficult, difficult to um, really, I would say, find parallels in uh, mm. like how, you know, the interest, like the, the reasons behind the interest in fairy tales in mm. the UK, for example, um, you know, or Ireland. Mm. Uh, which it has never sort of faded and the mm-hmm. u.s i would say you know from mm. what my sort of uh cultural understanding is and you know the u.s is very separate there there is a sort of tendency sometimes because the U- u.s sort of culture is so mm. dominant uh on internationals or markets but to mm-hmm. kind of be quite u.s centric but we mm-hmm. have you know the different countries you know in europe they have very different uh mm. sort of history to the US mm-hmm. and we have a very different view on uh all aspects of everyday life you know like mm-hmm. uh from sort of gender roles to you know race to uh to how we interact with the natural world all of that mm-hmm. is is very very different mm-hmm. so i think the interest will have a slightly different dimension mm. as well so i think in a, on the US side there is definitely i've noticed an interest in uh so we have a lot of American um, writers of um, of sort of Eastern European uh, sort of w- heritage, like you mm-hmm. know, with, uh, like Naomi Novik, for example, mm-hmm. uh, writing books uh, and lovely books inspired by the sort of heritage of their ancestors. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a way of kind of reconnecting rerouting yeah. looking back and, and it's very interesting to see from um sort of european point of view because obviously those authors are still american they have mm-hmm. an american culture and uh but they are kind of trying to ground themselves in 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 a culture of uh their family members mm-hmm. and you know which they're very welcome to do and i think it's mm-hmm. a lovely lovely thing to do but it has like a different aspect. It's a, it's a kind mm. of like sort of wistful looking back rediscovery. Whereas mm. when you have countries which have like a, a sort of different sense of continuity, mm-hmm. um, and, and it's sometimes linked to political situation as well, to sort of looking back and, and, and linking 
what how we feel about the country now to to some of the stories from the past or sometimes mm. it's linked to um sort of social upheaval like you know mm. fairy tales and and mythologies they they tell us of the um of the values of a community and mm. they they are also a very good tool when it comes to uh, sort of any nation uh, identity building efforts and when it mm. comes to trying to ground people in whatever the current sort of political direction is. For example, uh, you know, because obviously Slavic countries, but it's a myriad of her different con- countries with different languages, uh, mm. you know, different cultures, you know. Uh, so we have a lot of similarities. Uh, mm. Uh, between us but there's also significant differences and Mm. um when it comes to sort of this nation building power of fairy tales in Mm. uh sort of end of 19th uh, beginning of 20th century um for poland for example there was um poland uh was kind of it had been erased from the world map Mm. you know so it was sort of partitioned uh, the Polish neighbors uh, sort of took chunks of Poland and sort of divided between themselves. So mm-hmm. there was a real effort on the Russian side, on the German side, to erase Polish culture and erase Polish language. Mm-hmm. Um, so the artists of that time, you know, when you had the sort of Art Nouveau in a kind of Western Europe, you had uh, the Young Poland movement. And it was a movement that sought to identify a national style a national Mm. style of art a national style for poetry for literature something that would sort of unite and solidify polish identity Mm. uh, which is very hard to do in in any case you know it's like a national identity is such a construct it's an artificial construct that you need to utilize all those uh, sort of visual uh, aspects as well Mm. To try and create a sense that we have, we are a people that have something in common, mm. and but on the Russian side, for example, the sort of Russian Empire side, the um, the movement of the time was uh, more to, geared towards pan-Slavicism. So it was uh, more mm. rooted in we are all Slavs. You know, there's like, uh, so there were uh, stories sort of illustrated, beautifully uh, illustrated Russian tales uh, by um, illustrated by Ra- uh, Russian artist Ivan Bilibin, mm. for example, very influential. Uh, so those, stor- vo- those efforts were more to show that we are all like a one big nation of Slavs mm. under the protective umbrella of the Russian government. Mm. So that it was almost like the Russia was the mother and all the other countries were kind of um, mm-hmm. uh, just a part of it, like a like a, a version of it, you know, and that mm-hmm. it, it should be. And, you know, we still see it, of course, and, you know, in what's happening uh, right. in Ukraine, Ukraine yeah. uh, that, um, you know, very similar efforts in mm. terms of rediscovering the old stories, the old sort of folk traditions, the old folk art can be used for diametrically opposing political reasons. Mm. So was go ahead. No, <laughs> I, mean, I was pretty much finished. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, okay. Well, excuse me. I did. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I I'm wondering if there's an element to your book that I completely missed. 
you know, as an American? Are there political currents, uh, undertones, overtones, um, even just motivations that you had in mind when you wrote this book that maybe, again, as an American, I would have completely missed? I mean, there probably are a lot of it is not like there probably a lot of it are not not in the sense that you probably missed mm. it. I mean, I'm saying that you know there is uh, you know some of the characters that I'm writing mm. they're kind of like versions of what I've seen in Poland or you know the kind of a countryside mm. that I've reimagined. It's it's mm-hmm. in some ways. Uh, almost idealized version of obviously what the countryside life was but I tried mm. to include certain elements like there's um, a mother who uh, Kada helps sort of uh, during labor mm-hmm. and there is a mention but you know she she comes from a poor family the next day she'd be expected to be working in the fields you know yes I did and that. yeah and I wanted to kind of include those those little you know nods to kind of realism here and there because mm. um it's interesting actually there's a uh, so there's a book i'm reading at the moment mm-hmm. um which is like an absolute bestseller in poland uh mm. it's non-fiction it's called Chłopki, which is uh female basically means female peasants mm. in polish and okay. it's the stories uh of people who, you know how how women functioned in the polish countryside in uh, uh early 20th century um really up to for up to the 40s uh you know early 50s so these are my this is my great grandmother's generation right and how okay. and it's not the, the the really fascinating thing about it is how it's completely devoid of sentimentality mm. and how it shows just how incredibly brutal yeah. Not just difficult, incredibly brutal and sort mm. of primitive life was mm. uh, for those women. They were, they were treated as property. They were worked to the bone. They had no uh, say in who they were going to marry. They had no say in anything, really. Mm. Um, sort of bought and sold, um, even though the, the government before World War II sort of um, was supposed to... Uh, encourage children to have like you know education like a lot of families wrote to the schools to allow their children especially girls to not go to school uh, because they were needed for work and they were Mm. just so uh, the concept of family as it is now was very different so family Mm. was um, like a company and mm-hmm. the father was like the boss and mm-hmm. that was managing, the overseer mm-hmm. yeah, basically but was managing the employees and so if one of the children sort of went off to better themselves that would be the family losing an employee mm-hmm. and so it was re- it's really interesting reading this book now after <laughs> you know writing. long after my you know the bone has gone to print because there's certain elements where I, I I sort of gave a nod to this very brutal reality of, mm-hmm. of life in the countryside, but I didn't want it to be about that. So if I mm. made it too realistic, I think it would be if I if I had written a book that was purely realistic from that point of view, then that's what this book would have been about. Mm. And um It wouldn't have been about the folk tales. 
the it wouldn't tales. have been about the the folk yeah. tales but it wouldn't have been about the two mothers anymore really mm. it would have been about that brutal realism of it so yeah. i think it's it's um so people like now especially with this book this Hopki book out they might uh, sort of think about it as being kind of idealized and mm. to an extent it's deliberate so, right. so in terms of it, it's deliberate what I'm not focusing on here because mm. uh, I mean I think there's no you know brutal stuff in this book in terms of the actual well there there are others that like yeah I, yeah I mean, about. The, there there is and it's interesting I mean again I referenced Disney earlier which besides like I said you know so I I read a lot as a child and I read mm-hmm. you know the original. Hans Christian Andersen and Grimm's, not not the original because <laughs> in English, but <laughs> the English translations. And then to see, you know, the differences into this like super bright, primary color, cheerful, chirpy Disney world <laughs> <laughs> yeah. was yeah, one yeah. thing. And I recognized in the bone roots, I think I put in one of the questions, like I felt from the beginning, this even impending sort of doom of like, this isn't going to go well. We are fighting an impossible battle here, (laughs) you know, and I was very invested in that impossible battle, but while you may not have gone with the realism of, I mean, even much of your, most of your characters are upper middle class or upper class, um, you know, so you may not have focused on the peasant reality. There's still a sense of this, this is real life. And sometimes your best efforts aren't good enough in this book. Yeah. I think, I think that is more, um, something I'm interested in, in, in kind mm. of keeping those behaviors and those motivations realistic. I think that's, mm. that, that's the really, um, and of course, like, you know, we set it up from the beginning, even though uncovered says, you know, there's two mothers and, yeah. you know, only one of them can see succeed in, uh, keeping her child safe. So, yeah. you, know, you, you know, from the get go that they will be disappointment there. Right. It's a zero sum game. And like, I feel like, again, here in America, we're really good at being like, but there's a multiverse, you know, like a zero sum game turns into everybody has opportunity, which is actually very much of like the American mindset, actually. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, that's not like, I think early on in the book, I was like, don't expect that, Becky. There's not going to be a twist of like, (laughs) it turns out that everybody gets the opportunity to win here, you know? Um, No, I mean, mean, I'm sorry. I'm I'm Polish. It's just like, you know, death and misery and destruction. (laughs) Which is from my mind. Which is so interesting. So. Okay, so if I can turn um, turn here, like this is actually, I'm so glad we got to talk about this because mm-hmm. um, like I said earlier, I think there's things that you've talked about, again, about the political and philosophical and psychological mindset um, that you went into this with that I, I would just not know um, if you didn't tell me, you know, but there's this other, I think, really, um, uh, so I think this book, as much as it's about that, it's very much about the nature, um, I -hmm. think, in Poland. And like you said earlier, like, um, the human relationship to nature, and it's obviously very, very, it's a very close connection um, in this book. And I was fascinated by that. I really, really enjoyed that aspect of the book. And that's where maybe I'd like to start to dive a little bit into your story 
and even your recipe, because both, um, both your recipe and the story are rooted in your time in the Lake District in Poland. So can you tell us about that area? I'm, I'm thinking maybe that is actually as nice as it seems, but maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> it's lovely. It's, oh. it's, it's changed a bit um, okay. since, since I was a kid. Um, mm. Uh, the government sort of has been cutting down lots of trees, unfortunately, and it's been more, um, more land's been bought up. So it was a, a fair bit more wild when I was a child. Hmm. Uh, but the house still stands. We still go over most summers, you know, like, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a big part of my upbringing. It's a big part of my life. Um, hmm. so, uh, the Polish Lake District. I mean, it, my husband always laughs at me when I say the Lake, the Polish Lake, Lake District because why? In the English mind, at least, it instantly presents the image of like, you know, Beatrix Potter and like the Lake District. Right, right, uh, right. Which uh, I've never been in, but there's a Yeah, we call it the land of Great Lakes in, mm. in, in Polish Mazura. So it's um it has kind of a, a, a large number of glacial uh lakes that are surrounded by forests. Oh wow. And it's um it it used to be a bit more wild when I was growing up. Uh but there's also like uh it's kind of like a dacha uh sort of lifestyle uh mm-hmm. left over from a communist time in Poland. So basically people couldn't really travel abroad. So it was a thing that if you could afford it at all, you would buy like a scrap of land in a wilderness and sort mm-hmm. of have a house or have a um or have a, like a cabin for mm-hmm. the holidays, and it was I just see. a thing, and a lot of people did it. It's it, it's not like uh, on the upper class, <laughs> so, so it, it, uh, sort of thing. So, um, so my grandpa had sort of basically he he uh, got the opportunity to get a little piece of land, and he bought a house uh close to, uh, sort of by the lake uh mm. it's surrounded by woodland and i used to go over every every summer for most of the summer since i was four wow so i remember this <laughs> the first uh summer the house wasn't quite ready yet so we were sleeping in a wooden shed wow. i still have that memory and I'm, uh, you know i was about four so i was really tiny mm-hmm. um but it's um yeah, it had a definitely a huge impact on me. And, you know, when it comes to my writing, I am very drawn to kind of close-up descriptions of the natural world, especially the mm. sort of tactile aspect of it. Mm. I think it's not enough to say that there's a field of yellow flowers, you know, like how do they smell? How do they, you know, how do they mm. feel when, on, on your fingertips when you touch them? And I think there is, oh, you know, I, I always look back to that a uh, sort of experience of being like you know for a long period of time in the countryside where you sort of slow down and you notice little things hmm. was it i'm going to i'm going to ask a question here the answer may well be no but there is something <laughs> almost um well let's put it this way the nature in the bone roots is very wild it's um it's actually threatening in some places you know these these roots grow out and curl hmm. around some of the characters and things like that and I'm wondering this this wild environment that you grew up in. It sounds like you felt very very safe um, with your grandparents. It was like a safe and comforting and cozy place. But in a way, also you really were confronting like the wildness of nature. This had mm-hmm. not been um, tamed, you know, in any way. 
I think, um, you know, obviously I, I felt safe and I was well looked mm. after. But the point is that when you're in a kind of in a countryside, when you're in a sort of place that's a bit more wild, you have to have a healthy dose of respect for nature. You know, mm. nature is not um, a Disney-esque construct. Mm. It's, uh, you know, we are sort of visitors there. And that was something that my, you know, my grandpa had always like instilled in me i'm a visitor mm. in, in the forest and i have to respect it and um you know we did a lot of foraging and mm. i'm teaching my kids foraging now and wow. it's just and it's something that you know you have to have a sense of awareness that um you know if you make a mistake that mistake could cost you dearly you know so there's mm. like go the golden rule of foraging but you know i always tell my friends is unless you're a hundred percent certain wow. that you know what this is then it's poisonous wow like, that's the assumption <laughs> because, yeah and you know it, it you'd be amazed by how often people completely disregard this golden rule like you know i remember i was mm. uh um cycling once uh like a couple years back I was, I was just cycling for a forest and i saw a man picking poisonous mushrooms into a basket mm. and i stopped and i told him like mate these are deadly <laughs> you know? wow this is um and i tried to explain like look you can see there's like the red veining on the on on, on the stem of mushroom like oh wow this is poisonous and he just like looked at me with utter contempt and he was just like, oh, well, what would you know? <laughs> what? You know, like just scoffed. And I was like, yeah, okay, fine. You know, I said, go ahead, poison your family. That's your want. <laughs> I just cycled on because what else can you do? I wasn't going to literally wrestle. Right. No, of course not. So what do you think is but, the likely outcome that happened there? Well, I hadn't heard of anybody, you know, poisoning. Dying. Family, so... <laughs> <laughs> so maybe they either had just bad stomach upset or he was just trying to save face you know he's like right. can't admit to a blonde girl that he's that he's wrong and he probably right. just chucked it i don't know i mean wow. i mean at that point it's just there's only no like you said you yeah, can't physically like, wrestle it out of his hands yeah so although, you did although, although my the father had a sort of similar situation where he came across a woman with her kids and she had a basket filled with mushrooms, a wide variety of mushrooms, none of them chanterelles, which is what she claimed she had been picking. Uh -huh. And uh, I don't know how she couldn't tell that they, she had a variety of different mushrooms in her basket, but she thought they were all the same type. So my father told her that unless she empties that basket right now, she was going to call the police because she was going to kill her children. Wow. <laughs> so, so that was a bit more intense because like when you're faced with a like, okay, this person's literally about to feed these toadstools to, uh, her, uh, to her kids. So yeah, so, but people like, wow. have no common sense. So you have to have a certain level of respect to nature. Right. You know, you have to know my, my grandfather was a, uh, was a hunter. Mm. he taught me some animal tracking you know he would show me uh how to tell that like wild boars have been around you know and and how to sort of behave if there's a wild boar because because wild boars are, are very you know they're very dangerous creatures if if you scare them yes uh, uh not for nothing like wild boar used to be considered in a sort of bow and arrow and spear kind of days uh was considered to be a much more dangerous quarry than even a bear Wow. Uh, so, 
it's uh so so you have to know what's there and you have to you know you're on their territory this is mm. not your home mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so and so I, yeah so that I, was something i was very much aware of growing yes up. yes again i think just even that sense that you get as you read the book like you're almost um i think like when a chapter opens and you find yourself as the reader kind of alone in the woods with maybe just one character you have this sense of um well, she's not safer. He's not like, what's going to happen to them here, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And so I think you did a really good job of conveying that um, with Thank your you. with your writing. So um, let's stay on this wild boar track for a moment, <laughs> because wild boar is actually the basis of um, this recipe that you mm-hmm. shared and your grandfather's hunting of the wild boar. So tell me um, the name and then describe this recipe and tell us how this relates to both your childhood and to the story that you wrote. That's a lot of questions. That's even more questions in one <laughs> than the first one I gave you. <laughs> So there is a, a there is a sort of basic sort of pasta recipe uh, mm. that I sent you, and pa- you know pasta it's a it's an unpretentious, unassuming dish, and mm. you can get it in most like Polish delis. You can buy some type of pasta, you know. Mm. It's um, it's essentially like fine ground pate mm. that is made from meats, uh, mm. different like variety of meats, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the recipe, but my what my grandma used to do is she used to sort of instead of pork, she would uh, use wild boar if my grandpa had hunted one. Wow! Um, so that, and that was your that, favorite version. Yes, of course, and it was. <laughs> uh, but but there was like this whole sense of it being something quite special, you know. So mm. it wasn't. Uh, it, it was something to be kind of respected and this is for, because because there was a fair bit of work involved as well in the making of it and mm. um yeah so 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 that was sort of uh, a part of um mm. uh, a, a part of my kind of childhood yeah and how, yeah how how did your grandfather um hunt both track and then kill this wild boar so um so basically uh the way hunting works in the u.s is very different to how hunting mm. works in poland so you know you don't shoot with or you know you can't shoot with like crossbows or anything like that mm. but uh, to be a hunter you need to uh uh pass pass the exam uh oh. to sort of so my grandpa had to be able to you know, tell from like 150 meters or whatever how old that like a deer is, for example, you know, oh, not wow. just whether it's a male or female, but like, you know, how old it is, or sort of what state it's in. And um, you would get, uh, there's a certain number of permits um, in each sort of season. Uh, diff- mm-hmm. Different animals have different sort of hunting seasons. And you you get a, a different uh, sort of number of permits, um, and you can get a permit to shoot, for example, like that 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 particular sort of hunting uh, association uh, has a permission to shoot like three wild boars, right? Oh wow! Okay, season or something. You know, I'm I'm just uh, yeah throwing number, but um, or you can fr- uh, shoot like ten two year old male deer. Wow. Right. 
And after you hunt, you have to sort of fill in the paperwork, like, you know, and you have to evidence. And if you if you get it wrong, if you shoot like a four-year-old deer instead mm-hmm. of a two-year-old deer, there's penalties involved as well. So it's not, and uh, it, it, it's, it's not as simple as. And hunters also, uh, you know, what my grandpa used to do is he used to do a certain, it's, it's kind of like service for the community, like forest community, you know, like, Certain mm. hours a year, he would be um, going around. Like they, they, they would look for um, uh, sort of poacher traps. They would mm. uh, leave uh, food out for for the animals in winter. They would, you know, so stuff like wow. that. So, so it's uh, it's like a whole organization, and uh, at the moment, frankly, it has a really bad rep in Poland uh, for mm. a variety of reasons. Um, but the way uh, my my grandpa was uh, Forrester's son, so it was like oh, a family wow. tradition for him. So wow, um, so it is it, as much about stewardship of the land, yeah, caring so for it and the animals. Not all hunters behave like that, and mm. that's not all hunters' sort of uh, view of things. Mm. But for my grandpa, he said he like the biggest part of it was always like his love of animals, and mm. he would spend frankly way more hours at four in the morning like watching for animals with his like binoculars than he did with his rifle so wow um so i i i I spent a great many hours with him in that uh hunter's sort of lookout wow um, sort of high up in the tree just watching animals at dusk Mm. did you feel peaceful there yes it's um it's a it's a very unique experience you know i remember going for like i have a very sort of strong memory of being quite small and going for a field with my grandpa and and you're kind of trying to make yourself small walking for tall grass uh Mm. trying to make yourself as quiet as possible and then my grandpa would give me a sort of signal and like what you know uh point and then you would see uh an elk or you know like something like that and it's Mm. just and it's that sense of again that you're a visitor and you get a glimpse of something that's quite secret and there's like a Mm. lot of excitement in that Mm. that you get to to see something that you know you're not meant to see maybe but it just sort of gives you a sense of connectedness right and what a bonding experience I think when you go or see somewhere beautiful and remote with someone that you love. It's a very bonding thing with that person. So I can imagine how your grandfather and you um, to share such an almost sacred moment together was a very bonding thing. It was. And it's, um, my grandpa was like a very, very special man. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, he still is you know he 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 still live, uh, lives but yeah. uh, he has very advanced dementia uh, mm. sadly but um yeah he 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 was a wonderful guy and he loved nature wow tell me about your grandmother i you have this um you know maybe 6 to 8 paragraph um portion of your book 
that is talking about um, this like strong cook. I think it's actually a male in the book who's yeah. making, <laughs> making this pashtet. And like, it's like, it doesn't matter that this person is an employee. They rule the roost because they can, they wield the pashtet, which is what everyone <laughs> wants. And um, I'm wondering oh, absolutely. How, <laughs> how is this, um, how does this maybe relate to your grandmother? And tell us about your times in the kitchen with her. What do you you know, you shared these times with her the way you shared the time in nature with your grandfather. Tell us about that. So um, my bab Chalonia is, uh, <laughs> she's lovely. Is uh, uh, So so I spend a lot of time with her, of course, growing up. And um, uh, she's, uh, she's got, you know, like, she, she, so the, the cook in, uh, uh, the cookmotic from the book is not not based on her. I actually mm. did uh, sort of write once a character loosely inspired by her, uh, sort of oh. Sorona in the Wind Child duology, okay. uh, my children's duology. But she is um, like she seems quite soft and sweet mm. and fragile, but she's also incredibly strong, mm. and. Um, and she has like a, a sentimental streak that mm. you know I, I really sort of connected with. Uh, mm. She wasn't sort of ever as effusive as my uh, as my grandpa. My grandpa was from sort of Cresses, so sort of the east, more Eastern sensibilities. So mm. he was very um, uh, like he was very like physically affectionate, and he was quite bombastic and sort of. <laughs> allow my my grandma was always the the quiet one and uh it's uh like my grandpa would always say of my my grandma that like still waters run deep so it's Mm. she has all like she held a lot of like so she like he did defer in her so he was the loud Mm. one but then would defer to her in in in, Mm. in most sort of everyday stuff Mm. and um yeah, and it was just all the food she made was always like, you know, that's how you sort of she showed affection and mm. she um and she always like, you know, even like now I visit Poland, like, you know, my kids, she will always try to make our favorites, you know, and she'll always mm. try to figure out what the favorites are and and it's she she always sort of tries to um to show that affection like even to yeah. so my mom's vegetarian and because she does the cooking so my dad mostly eats vegetarian food mm. and like my grandma would like smuggle him some bacon you know <laughs> like, it's just like that's how she shows affection it's like no. that's her I love language you, I know you love it I know you're technically not allowed here you go <laughs> so. but I bet she makes vegetarian dishes for your mom at the of same course, time. Yes. Of course. Yes. Mm. She, you know, she will cater for everyone, even if at the beginning she didn't quite get what vegetarian food was. And she thought, mm. well, I can make a bone broth, but if I as long as I take the meat bits out, that's vegetarian, right? And your mom was like, No, that's not how it works. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, from someone who was married to a hunter to a vegetarian, it's a leap. It is a leap. It's a completely different mindset. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, there has to be, you know, flexibility in things. Like, my mom would not refuse, like, my mom's technically vegetarian. She would not dare refuse my grandma's pastet. Oh, okay. Yeah. There's a lot of respect going both ways. <laughs> of course. Mm, that's lovely. 
That's lovely. Yeah. It's not completely disinterested. Like it's delicious. Fantastic. (laughs) Very hard to resist. Okay. So let's, um, oh, actually I have a couple of technical, I was going to say, let's shift back a little bit to the folk tales and the, um, and the book, but actually first I do have some technical questions about Mm -hmm. making, um, this pastet. So first of all, you talked about how your, the wild boar was the most special version Mm -hmm. of these pastets to you, which I don't think I can source wild boar (laughs) here. Don't worry Um, about that. (laughs) But if, 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 if somebody, I mean, if somebody was going to, it's more just like a question about you and your childhood and your life. So that calls for bacon, beef, pork, chicken liver, and chicken breast. Which one would your mom, uh, sorry, your grandmother um, replace with the wild boar? Did, uh, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. It could, uh, basically, it could replace both beef uh, and pork. Okay. It's a bit, it's a fair bit tough. Like, so wild boar is a bit tougher meat than pork, oh, but it's okay. double minced. So it doesn't matter. So as long as you have like chicken breast in there, that mm. gives it like a little bit of softness. Okay. And of course, the liver and bacon, obligatory. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, yeah. So, uh, uh, so you could because you know you, you people make variety of pastet right mm. so sometimes uh so it depends on your taste so you could um you know you can have just poultry pastet as yeah. well right if you okay. want so okay it's just to have that variety and balance of lean mm. meats and fatty meats and mm. uh and the liver is important as well it, it uh. gives it that kind of binding um, okay yeah I needed to ask flavor. about the liver yeah okay so, so liver also it's just kind of adds like an extra level of softness to the dish mm. it's, it's just it's quite hard to explain but it would be a very dry hmm. uh, dish without it so hmm. it, it's quite it's a very important component Okay. I'm going to go for it then. I've actually, I mean, the only time I've really used liver, it's like, you know, when I get a roast, when I buy like a raw Mm. roast chicken or turkey and I roast it, you know, to make the, um, you know, the giblet gravy, but I've never cooked with chicken liver before. Oh, you're missing out. Well, we'll find out this time. Sure. This is why I like like, this. (laughs) Yeah. You can like, oh, I love liver. Like, you know, cooked with like onions and apples, maybe a bit of rosemary really yeah wow okay and you have is it high is it high in fat is that why it brings the softness or no I mean it's not it's not it I mean I suppose it can be if it's from a very fat chicken I don't know but (laughs) yeah it's an organ so Mm. because it's an organ it's like a different type of tissue really and mm. that's why you can't like you shouldn't overcook it. Like I think mm. I put it in recipe, but you essentially like um scold it almost, you know, like it's it's oh. just so it's not supposed to be like really cooked to dry because then it then it loses that kind of uh, lightness to it. I see. Okay. And is it strong? Is the flavor strong? It's gotta be. Um uh, Pork liver is a strong flavor. Use chicken mm. liver for sure. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, lamb liver is even, it, it would be overpowering. Uh, Interesting. So ch- chicken liver is, is best for that kind of recipe. Okay. Okay. 
All right. Well, I'm going to go for it. I mean, I really do love this. I love getting these recipes where I have to try um, new things. So thank you for that. <laughs> I mean, I think as, as organs go, liver is a real like entry point. <laughs> oh, yeah. Of, it's like, I mean, I, I would not You're letting me off with, easy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would not cook with like lungs and things like that because then you get like a level of texture that I can't quite cope with. Oh, so, yeah. and oh, yeah, that's spongy. Yeah. 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 Okay. 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 All right. So let's talk a little bit more about your book. Um, and so maybe just for listeners, can you just, do you say Kada? Kada? How do you say the name of Kada. the main character? Kada. Kada. Okay. So Kada is the main character of this book. And can you just set up her? Kada and Sladiana. It's really like two. Kada two and Sladiana. Yes. Of yeah. Course, they're yeah. the two mothers. Um, I guess Sladiana is introduced later, maybe. Yeah. Um, so I guess you get invested in Kata a mm-hmm. little earlier. But um, so can you just set up, yeah, their predicament then um, for the listeners? So Kata, uh, Kata is a kind, is a Vedma. So that's like a type of a sort of Slavic witch um, mm. that lives in a village. Sladiana is a noble woman. But the two women had met uh, sort of 16 year not quite 16 like 15 years prior uh to the beginning of the book Mm -hmm. uh and kada helped sladiana get her baby from the uh, childbearing tree Mm -hmm. of mother zemia the sort of nature goddess that Mm -hmm. has this huge tree in in the middle of a fiesna land and with a bone with its bone roots sort of covering every inch of the of the land really mm. and um so both women get their babies from that tree and from early on you get a sense that you know kada is very anxious about secha secha is not quite 16 and something is amiss go something's amiss uh you know secha is a lovely girl that seems to be getting really wilder and weirder by the day mm-hmm. whereas and yes with, with a tint with a tinge of that mm-hmm. and um on the other side of it there's sladiana whose baby had been stolen by the fox mm-hmm. thief so there's this elusive fox thief that we yeah. don't know until the very sort of last chapter really mm-hmm. about who that fox thief is but and i did not guess i was shocked <laughs> <laughs> i did not see that coming <laughs> so uh i'm glad <laughs> we're yeah. for that suspense <laughs> but, yeah. um, but uh she is uh wait so sort of her baby was stolen and for 15 years uh she'd been looking for her child um so she gets a signal sort of through sort of sacrifice every year like that this child is still alive but obviously growing into a while into a young woman somewhere out in the world Sladiana can't protect her can't keep her and she misses her child mm-hmm. and there is a sense you, you you will get a sense fairly um early on I think as well that Kada knows a lot more about the situation yes than Sladiana does mm-hmm. and so you know, the two women are kind of from quite early on sort of um, 
kind of um, growing more antagonistic to towards each other mm-hmm. uh, by the second and there's like all the all this mystery about what mm-hmm. is wrong with those children even though and i appreciated this you had sladiana really try she really tried to like kata she tried to overcome her instinct of not trusting her and then you know of course her instincts yeah. were proven correct but i i you, i found that i didn't i didn't connect with Sadiana at first and then I grew to really respect her because you put that mm-hmm. you put that in there I appreciated that I I think it's very like you know both both characters like they're very imperfect women yeah and I think um you know Sladiana has this sort of foundling child that she sort of takes in mm-hmm. and she uh, the the, ch- the child is like a six-year-old girl who's mute and Sladiana treats her like a um, substitute child and sort of almost like a pet. So from very early on, like there is that sense, I, like I, I was hoping uh, to get that sense in the reader that, you know, this is not right. Mm-hmm. Um, but well, there is like a level of grief built into that. Yeah. And but in the way, you know, like you say, she's trying to like Kada, I think it's more like desperation, you know, like mm. it, you, you kind of when you think Mm -hmm. you've found someone who can give you what you really want Mm -hmm. you're really desperate and like you know and 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 you see it in a lot of situations in 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 real life you know when people uh, meet someone who they think will be a good partner for example right like yes uh, they overlook all the red flags that they see they know them but they just will um yeah they won't listen to their instincts or if you know someone who really wants a child adopts a child and they put all their hopes you know onto that child and if what if Mm. the child you know turns out to be you know grow up to not not be a nice person for example like that is Mm. also like the level of dissociation from the reality Mm -hmm. uh you know that i have seen uh in the past in people so it's it's when you really want a person to be something for you, I think you're willing to overlook a great deal mm-hmm. in order mm-hmm. to preserve that hope. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to tell you, I don't know if you, I, I have um, four children, two are biological and two are adopted. So mm-hmm. I think part of the reason I did not, I I, I resented Sladan, mm-hmm. um, her Sladiana, relationship. Yeah, yeah Sladiana, her relationship with um, the child that she had adopted because it seemed so she didn't she wasn't even willing to refer to her really as her child um yes I I I think it's I resented that (laughs) yeah I mean it's it's not meant to be easy that aspect Mm, of it because I think you know both women you know they took the the children that the tree grew for them right Mm -hmm. those children looked like them Yes, and so they were in one sense adopted because those women did not carry them. Right, but those children seemed to have been grown specifically for them, like very yeah. much physically mm-hmm. um, uh, similar. Whereas yes. the child that Fladiana kind of adopts, and of course, you know, it's like a different time. It's meant to be a different time, so mm-hmm. people didn't adopt children in the same way that people adopt children now. Mm-hmm. It's not a process where this child is legally yours it's just Mm -hmm. like do you want this child by the side of the road okay I'll take this child you know Mm -hmm. it's just so it's like a different uh, mental process and I think Mm -hmm. that is also worth sort of thinking about but this is not our modern context but Mm -hmm. 
I think there is an aspect of why did she take this child in? Yes. And how do her feelings evolve as well? And how yes. does her understanding of what she's doing to this child evolve? Yes. Because, you know, like a child's not a pet. And when yes. you kind of, uh, w- w- when you take a child in, it you have to look at this child's needs. And I think that's right. It's it's very um so when I say, you know, like when when people really want some to see something in another person. So yeah. for example, like I've heard of, of you know quite a few situations where an adoptive parent, you know, really wanted their child to be academically gifted right. because they themselves were. And right. they were putting all of that pressure on the child, and the child was just not suited right. to 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 schooling basically yes mm-hmm. uh the child really struggled and that created like this um disassociation mm-hmm. yeah tension resentment yeah yes. absolutely because it's like it's a disconnect between yep. the reality of a child and what you can provide this child and what you want for this child and and all those things and and you're not actually looking at who, who this child is yeah yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny. All these, there were, I have like marked in my, um, again, this is a very, very personal issue for me. My, mm-hmm. um, my adopted children are actually even a different race. And so there were all these markings that I was making through the book of like, interesting or views on adoption, question mark, or experience, you know what I mean? And I, when I was writing the questions, I was like, okay, we're going to leave that. But I'm actually glad we touched on it because it is something that you look at with um, quite a dispassionate view, I think. So I think one of the things that's hard about being an adopted child in America is because it is looked at so actually really in such a fairy tale way, which is not the reality for the child that experiences adoption. And so um, to be expected to see their story as a fairy tale when that's not their actual experience, that's that's a disconnect. And that is difficult, I think, think, for the child. Yeah, I think absolutely. And I think, of course, um, it's a comp- It's also a very complicated issue in the States because you guys have um, a lot of unsolved issues le- when it comes to sort of legal aspect of adoption. You know, the fact mm. that you can just, uh, in I don't know if on all the states, but, you know, you can like basically legally pass that child on later. If you're like, oh, this adoption is not working and you can kind of just pass the child on. And there's like, it's not very child centered, the the law surrounding adoption. It's uh, it's more centered on the needs and the desires of the adoptive parents. I think that is something that is always worth looking at because these are very complicated human relationships and and those are. are very... Um, those are very difficult subjects and I think there's a lot of issue with people trying to kind of flatten it and talk about mm. whereas like yes we should be talking about the issues surrounding uh, you know commercial adoption mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, the way you know we should that it's be a business uh, and it shouldn't absolutely. be and I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of issues surrounding that that have become mm-hmm. normalized um, mm-hmm. You know, when I, I don't know how how deep we're gonna go into this because these are yeah. all hot topics, <laughs> but it's like it is. But uh, but I'm I'm saying that all of those issues are complicated, and mm-hmm. you know, people also make mistakes. And I want to mm-hmm. s- sort of, uh, 
I kind of felt quite warm towards Sladiana's situation in the sense mm-hmm. that she might not have had that emotional intelligence to begin with regarding mm. her adoptive child. Mm. But, but she, yeah, she, she grows and she, does she makes grow. mistakes and she makes very significant mistakes. And, you know, mm-hmm. if a child lived now on t- and was on TikTok, God forbid, then like, <laughs> you know, that child would be going off talking about like adoptive trauma and like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the abuse, the absolute emotional abuse sort of thing. But then in in the book, you, you kind of, I hope that yes. it comes across that this is like a growth Yeah. Well, she has a moment of realization. Yeah. And she has a moment of realization, which is which is important. And I I liked actually that you were generous enough to give that to her, because whether we're adoptive parents or biological parents, we're all making huge mistakes often. And so to have the grace to say, um, here's a character who was making a big mistake, and maybe she was enabled to make that mistake by a system that was imperfect, um, where she was like, uh, kind of forgiven, she was given permission, it was like accepted that she could make those emotional mistakes. Um, But then she could grow and like you said, change anyway. And, and there was even despite her mistakes, a bond between mother and child that they could then build on when she Mm. came to, um, to realize her mistake that she wasn't starting from scratch, even though she had done damage, she was starting from a bond that did exist. Um, because her actions were there, even if her mind and heart weren't exactly where they should be, her actions were there. She did care for someone, which, you know, the act of love is a bonding thing, you know? And so I, I, yeah, I, I had very complicated feelings towards all of that because again, (laughs) I, this is a, this is a personal issue for me and And yeah, we could go really deep. It's a very complicated issue, and there's so it's everyone right to have complicated emotions about it. And I think exactly, yeah. I yeah. don't want. Um, I really don't like kind of preachy fiction in mm. any way. It doesn't matter what your views are. I really don't mm. like books, novels that tell me this is how you should feel about the character. Mm-hmm. So, um, and you know, because because people are people, and I'm I'm describing. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm describing people. I'm describing their, you know, how how they are. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean that it's like an endorsement of any particular sort of mode of behavior. It doesn't mean I'm condemning it. It's just it's it's just it is what it is. And I mm-hmm. think it's um and I think the complexity of those feelings is is the point. Mm. Well, yeah, and and again, I think if there was if redemption came into the story at all, I think it came the most in that relationship. Um, which I, I appreciated personally. Thank you. Um, it really means a lot. Oh, good. <laughs> good, good, good. So I, I want to dive, we talked about this at the beginning, but I want to dive a little bit deeper into like your choice to write essentially a folk tale, a fairy tale. I, I know there's a difference between the genre and we probably don't have time to dive into mm. that difference right now, but your choice to write this, was this something that, you know, you, you, you talked about like the culture is turning towards these stories again. So was this something that you kind of strategically just said like, Hey, this is happening in the culture. I want to do this. Is this something that, you know, maybe your grandmother and grandfather always told you these stories and you always knew you wanted to write your own folktale is, is tell me about your choice right. to write I mean, these honestly um i had always been really fascinating by fascinated by world mythologies mm. and um i kind of 
you know, I so obviously I read and and was read to um, some Polish folk tales when I was little, but then I kind of moved away from them and didn't return uh, for a long mm. time. I was just, you know, reading uh, other mythologies, you know, Norse mythologies, Japanese mm-hmm. mythologies, you know, like Greek, mm-hmm. Celtic, and it was, um, and it was only, you know, fairly recently, sort of uh, early in my thirties, when I kind of turned back and and thought more about Slavic mythology, and then I kind of, I had this idea for my sort of first novel, uh, The Second Bell. Mm. That the original idea was rooted in, um, like, like a question, like, you know, about, about the kind of popped into my head, like, about, like, how would you, um, we are such social animals. We are so, um, socialized to sort of obey the rules of the society. Uh, folk tales really, uh, reinforce those values. And like, what if those values that you grew up with told you that your child was evil? Mm. uh what would you do and um wow and, and that's uh and that's what that was my starting point for the second bell and then i started wow. sort of delving more into the the slavic mythology and um actually that that book was inspired by slavic mythology but it was not as tightly sort of woven uh-huh. with the folk tales as uh-huh. the bone roots is so the bone roots has a lot more different monsters and like creatures and gods and mm-hmm. uh, and, and all of that um of course it's like you know when it comes to like so the associations with fairy tale is uh are are are, are so particular that i kind of like move away from it it's like you know it is a it is a novel about two mothers and like at its core, the story is about the two mothers and how far they're willing to go mm. to protect their children. And uh, in in a different way from a writer's point of view, I was seeing like how far can I push it with mm. the kind of things they do, but we still forgive them, you know? Mm. Like, yeah. Because if uh, obviously like the whole premise of having like a morally great character is like, you know, if the justification is good enough, mm-hmm. like how far can we go? And I had someone like say like, but you know, kind of didn't really do that bad, like things that were that bad. And then I was like, started listing them as like <laughs> list involving murder and like <laughs> manipulation right. of a grieving parent and then all that. And they were like, oh, okay. Yeah. Maybe, maybe she did a few things right. but because her motivation is so understandable, you know, uh-huh. protecting her child. Uh-huh. Uh, we are willing to forgive a lot, you know. Most most people. Uh-huh. I mean, like most parents I know would, you know, sell uh-huh. a whole city worth of people for organs if it meant keeping their children safe, you know. So it's mm. not. So it's um. So there's mm-hmm. like very few limits to what human beings are, you know, willing to like draw a line on for mm. the children. Unless, of course, there's a sense of like the whole value system being undermined, which is like, you know, a story of the the second bell, not the bone roots. Mm. Well, this is this is yeah, this is something that I um. So after after I finished the book, I spent a long time in the glossary, really mm-hmm. um, 
reading about these different kinds of creatures, the the basis for them. And I did think it was interesting that one of them, you were like, this is just entirely made up from my from myself. And I loved that you <laughs> I loved that you had the confidence to say, I'm gonna make my own mythology here. I don't have to, you know, I can be part of the canon now. Um I liked that. But oh, I God, did absolutely yeah. <laughs> I, I, I did have kind of like actually a philosophical question about mm. the Makeda. Um because you just you said like it can either be well, she's a witch or a hag, like a Vedma is a witch or a hag, sometimes understood as a female magic user, sometimes a demonic humanoid creature resembling an old woman. And I thought, I, I really made me think, so which one was Kata? Was she really just a female magic user or was she actually kind of undercover by being young and pretty and like you said, doing things to protect her daughter really more of a demonic humanoid creature. And, what do you um, think is the answer? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that is not, that you're not going to get from me. Like, <laughs> that's well, I, I actually you know your interpretation as a reader. It's interesting. Like you said, how much you can be lulled by. It's a very interesting question for me. Um, what public figures get away with, and why mm. some get away with so much more than others? I think that is a really critical question in our society, especially like our political system, mm. um, because there's so many double standards. And so, this was actually like a question that I kind of struggled with after reading that that definition. And it's it's Kata was so. She did try to do the right things in many cases. And I felt that she genuinely did support her community um, mm -hmm. with very little expectation for compensation. And I felt that she tried to do right by her marriage. Like when she made a decision that she was going to um, love someone and she did make a decision to love him, she tried to do right by him. And I very much respected those two things in her. And so I'm wondering how much that like lulled me into being, like you said, okay, or even just dismissing or downplaying some of the really terrible things she did, you know? So I don't know. <laughs> I think it's something that is like, it's really interesting to me because mm. um, I think we all grapple with that. Like, yeah, because as much as we like to think generally like to think of ourselves as being quite sort of just and like fair yes. and kind of fair-minded and and uh, yes. like we all have double standards for every aspect of <laughs> like complex yes. basically you know I was uh, it's so funny I was just uh I was just like reading some article like kind of half-hearted like half with half an eye like kind of yeah, yeah, telling yeah. my husband like oh you know it's like reading this person like covered up over like friends um like affair and their mm. their uh their wife is like absolutely shocked by the like their lack of kind of uh moral compass but they would do that like this is quite horrible um and I was thinking like this, this is quite like a, a failing of a kind of moral kind Mm -hmm. uh, to be helping someone to deceive another person and then my yes. husband just turned to me and he was like yeah and if you're like insert name of my best friend like 
uh-huh. you know, who who was like not happy in her marriage, like told you she was about to like cheat on someone. You would you would not like cover for her, and I was like. All right, I'm a hypocrite. That's fine. Right. Well, <laughs> and see, isn't that the thing? Because, because yeah. you know more context as well, right? So if you know someone who's not happy in their relationship, mm. you will view their um any transgressions on their part in a completely different way mm. to what you would view the kind of affair of someone you don't whose marriage you don't know much about or whose marriage mm. seems happy on the outside right mm. so the more context we have the more nuanced our view is and mm. I think when especially you have like this close kind of you know it's 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 third person close narratives you know mm-hmm. um and you kind of see through the character's eyes and you kind of you know, you you see the feeling, like you read about the feelings they're experiencing, the pain they're experiencing, mm-hmm. the fear, all of that. Like it makes you excuse them more because you have you are just provided with far more context than we have, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with any other, you know, in 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 everyday life. Like as much as we can observe, you know, other people, and we can have a kind of try and create stories in our heads about what this person's going through, how they're experiencing things. We mm. don't actually have a narrator telling us this person is experiencing this emotion right now. So mm. we don't have that context. And the more, con- I, I really think, you know, the more context we have, the more understanding we have or of other people. And mm. um, But it's also and- a danger because we have our own context. And so we're we're actually quite willing to forgive the just flat out evil right like the demonic parts inside of us we're willing to excuse and um and and forgive them and ourselves instead Mm. of like you said like looking at them as maybe maybe somebody outside might be more objective about our own feelings than we are you know in a way like I think it really depends on the person like Mm. I know I'm like I'm far more strict with myself than I am Mm. with people I'm close to Mm. so I definitely that's a good way to be I mean I don't know because I kind of judge myself much more harshly Mm. as well um and then it's a whole exercise of if my friend you know felt this way or said this or things like would I think it's a terrible thing or would I be like Mm. this is a non-issue and so I think contextualizing it, trying to sort of bring in an outside perspective can be helpful in that as well. So it's like, you know, we, we're just, we're, we're complicated creatures. And I mm-hmm. think um, as much as people like to think that like um, a moral compass is a universal thing, it has never been a universal thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we have never, there has never been a time in human history and it, there still isn't where everybody views like a particular thing as bad or a particular thing as good. Like, it's just, it's not, we are. Certainly not all things. Yeah. Maybe certain things. Yeah. We we like to think certain things, but, but again, you know, when you start uh, going in on detail, I think there is Mm -hmm. no such thing as a universal set of values. Mm -hmm. You know, we all say, you know, we wouldn't, you know, like killing is bad. Right. Mm. But, you know, is killing bad when you're protecting your children? You know, right. is, is killing bad when you're uh, fighting off an attacker? Is killing bad when you're right. protecting 
uh, your country or protecting your values right. or you know and and then it starts to, to be kind of like a slippery slope like because it's like it goes from like the immediate like you know defending yourself in danger and defending mm. people you love to kind of like but what about my values what about mm. spreading democracy into the like less privileged countries you know it's mm. like and then it starts to be um far more relative than we like to admit to ourselves it mm. Is. Mm. Mm. but then like even kind of what what's a passive action versus active action you know like mm. it's Right, I think right. that is really interesting to me as, you know, mm-hmm. like writing. That is something mm-hmm. I like to look at. Well, I definitely, like I said, I mean, I was, um, there's a lot of notes in my margins and there were a lot of, um, <laughs> yeah, you you held me in tension a lot, I think. And we're going to go ahead and skip the question because I know, I know our hour's up. We're going to skip the question about motherhood because we, we went and did the adoption one that I wasn't going <laughs> to. It really means a lot to me because, you know, uh, I was wondering how will people react like who are like adoptive parents or adopted mm-hmm. children? How will mm-hmm. they view this? And mm-hmm. it's really it was really interesting for me to to, to hear your views on it, because mm. it's it is. um You know, you won't have two people with the same opinion. I no, think. no, you won't. And. Yeah, again, I think we could easily cover a podcast, a, a much longer podcast on on those issues and the different ways that people see them. And like you said, the different ways that cultures, um, mm. it's, it's a sticky thing. But uh, <laughs> one of the things that I found, um, so if you're, if, when you're diving into the world of folk and fairy tales, you do kind of feel like for better or for worse, you're going back mm-hmm. um, generations uh, centuries even. And yeah, maybe you go back and see it with an idealized, um, point of view, or maybe you go back and see that this is a a, a brutal, brutal time. Um, regardless, when I think of going back, I almost always think universally of, um, more of, of male and female relationships being more, what's the word that I want to say? Unequal. Correct. Let's just leave it at that. Yes. And I found it so interesting that you wrote this book um, that I guess it's actually kind of nebulous when it takes place. It just doesn't take place now. <laughs> no, I mean, based on how the uh, based on how the people are, like in terms of the living conditions, mm. that could be Holland in like early 20th century and okay. 18th century. Like there was very little difference in the villages in how people lived between like the 17th and the early 20th century in the early 20th yeah yeah so yeah so regardless it's a different a different place in time an earlier mm. place in time a more like to use a word yeah. you used earlier a more primitive mm-hmm. place in time and yet i feel like one of the ways um first of all that you really humanize these characters and I think brought a lot of warmth to them and to a book that again, from the very beginning, I, I, I was telling myself, don't expect an American into the story, Becky. Like I was bracing myself. Um, (laughs) One of the ways, again, that you just kind of brought warmth and redemption was in these male and female relationships that you described. Um, Keita and Gorke, Sladanya and Mikhail, Michael, um, and even with siblings, I thought, and I found that to be such an interesting and surprising choice. But again, it's one that brought a lot of warmth and a lot of like respect and 
affection for the characters that they saw each other's. What I saw was relationships where they saw each other's weaknesses and support, like both helped uh, challenge each other and their weaknesses, but also sort of supported them kind of unwaveringly. Um, you saw very successful and powerful men uh, elevate their, their, uh, they weren't necessarily wives yet, but you know, I, and I just mm-hmm. was like, so surprised by that choice. And I'm wondering, was it conscious? What, what was that for you? So, I mean, um, you know, the books, uh, uh, I write are very like woman centric, but, mm. you know, after writing the second bell, which, you know, it's basically a community of women mm. whose men often failed them, mm. uh, you know, the, the women who chose to protect their children, Versus the men who did not follow them, who did not, mm. you know, uphold their promise to them to to sort of help them and protect them as partners. So in mm. in this book, I was kind of obviously, you know, Kada is quite like a complicated woman. Yeah, and she is a powerful woman in her own right. Yes, um, she is uh, quite calculating when she sort mm-hmm. of obviously. Um, enters the relationship of Gorsai, but he is aware of it as well mm-hmm. you know so yes. there is like a mutual awareness mutual understanding you know he his feelings to her like he knows they're not mirrored in in her mm-hmm. feelings to him not at first but uh he definitely sort of hopes to uh sort of earn that yeah I, I, love. And, and he does yeah. because he is just a, a good man and I think it's we live in a time where it's like it's so many, um, especially I feel like young men are inundated with those really toxic concepts of what masculinity is and what mm-hmm. a real man ought to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, it's always been this way in, in one way or another. But I think uh, now it's it's kind of on the one hand, like we, we are missing like positive uh mm-hmm relationship models i think and mm-hmm. you know it's not like i wasn't reading uh, writing it to sort of be like oh this is like the good model of a relationship that we should all adhere to it's not it's not mm. it's not about that it's about like this is just how i view a positive relationship you know how i yeah. see uh you know like in, in my marriage and like mm-hmm. how i view um how people can be and i think mm-hmm. it's it's important to kind of circle back a little bit, you know, to mm-hmm. <laughs> make a social media post the other day because I was so irritated by the general, like, uh, no, you know, like the Andrew Tate sort of mm. saga and how people, like young men, especially young, young boys, are so enamored by his nonsense and they mm. think that it's like oh but that's what I should be and you know I have a friend mm-hmm. whose husband is like watches all those idiotic podcast telling mm. him about like oh alpha male this and that and like a high value man and whatnot and I was just thinking like the absolutely toughest most masculine man I had ever met was my grandfather my you know mm. my my hunter grandfather mm. my Jadek Janusz and he was you know like nobody from no no matter where you are on a political scale or your views could deny him that you know he was an army man he was a hunter mm. you know he was a um an army chemist for the UN Peace Corps you know wow. and um 
and he could clean and he could cook and mm. he was incredibly affectionate mm -hmm. uh, and emotive to kind of his children, to his wife, uh, mm -hmm. very respectful of his wife. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he he could, you know, build a house, you know, he mm -hmm. could <laughs> he could skin a deer, he could. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he 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 could he could hunt, he could fish, he could mm -hmm. defuse a bomb, and he could write a poem. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. and never forgot to bring my grandmother roses for anniversary. Mm -hmm. You know, like uh, mm -hmm. and he'd help, you know clean with her and like do everything with her. And it's like like that that to me is what is like you know if you're looking for the kind of tough guy, you know, models. Mm -hmm. Here's one. You yeah. know, like. This is so when when I was describing relationships in, mm -hmm. in this book, like I'm kind of bored of this sort of because I'm writing about women who are confident and mm -hmm. who are independent and strong in themselves. We're looking to, you know, like what I looked for in a relationship is like, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm looking for someone who will like elevate me and like help me mm -hmm. uh, help me be better as well, mm -hmm. you know, and mm -hmm. challenge right. me. And is not going to just fold as either, but is not mm -hmm. going to try to dominate me because I don't need that. I don't want that. Right. Right. And it's, and 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 but finding that equilibrium is is not it should not be hard because right. everybody benefits from right. the situation where you're both happy to right. challenge each other but stand by each other as well. Right. Right. Well, I just found it. So again, another thing about me, I have, I have four sons, so it's me mm -hmm. and five men in the house. Three of my <laughs> sons are teenagers. And, um, it's, it's, it's interesting for me to experience, um, you know, so much is made of girls these days and so much truthfully elevates young women and young girls. And there's so many, confusing messages, I think, to young men. And where Andrew Tate is wrong, there is also very little being presented to them as to what is right. Um, yeah. Very little. In fact, men are quite ridiculed um, and painted as sort of these like idiots That's and crazy. terrible. And I found I, I, it. Go ahead. I, sorry, um, I, I think it's definitely um, the unexpected flip side of patriarchal societies and misogyny. Something I've observed in Poland a lot mm. is it's an incredibly patriarchal and misogynistic society. Mm. But the flip side of that is women do not respect men. Mm, right, like, but in they, trying they might, to... They might claim they do, but they really do not. It's like they, if you treat someone like That's a child, manage their lives... Right. You have to do everything for them. If you have to clean after them, cook for them, they can't do anything. Uh, they, you know, they don't remember to bring a passport to the airport, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Like if you have to manage their life as if they were a small child, you're not going to have any respect for this person. And it's quite the disdain. Way, yeah, absolutely. And the way I've heard women talk about men in Poland my whole life was more about like managing them. That and is like so letting interesting. them, yes, and letting them pretend that they're in charge. That was yes. the thing. It's like, and I really rebelled against that because I was mm. like, oh, why should I waste my time and energy on that? Like, I'm not a rehabilitation mm. center for a poorly <laughs> brought up man. You know, it's not right. 
And right. uh, what is this giving me in terms of, you know, helping me grow and elevate, mm. you know, like. Right, it, right. And to be able to. Yeah. Right. And to be able to um, accept the fact that they do bring some some things to the table that it's good to, um, you know, benefit from, to learn from, to. Um, and so I just so I have to tell you, Gorsay was actually my favorite character in the entire book. Um, I did not think I was going to like him at all. You know, when this book starts with this woman rubbing this man's feet, I'm like, oh, you know, this upper class man's feet. I'm like, okay, here we go. Um, but he ended up truly, I think, to be my favorite character in the book. <laughs> and I feel that I liked the women in the book more because they were willing to kind of soften and listen and change and adjust and then also challenge and push back and all of these things that should be happening in a mutual relationship. And what I found is, like I said, there were points in the book, like when we ended up, when we were there out, you know, um, below the tree like i i could mm. feel myself in my body physically tensing up okay what's about to happen and i got okay. to the point in the book where i found myself like as a fly on the wall between these loving couples who had a lot of conflict very realistic <laughs> conflict like healthy conflict i found myself exhaling and breathing and you know it's it's you know like humor is a known um you know shakespeare of course like there was always a jester like it's it's known and of course this happens in so many books but for me those relationships were like the counterpoint to the tension in the book which i'm lucky enough to experience in life like my relationship with my husband is a counterpoint to the tension and the stress in the world even though we experience a lot of healthy conflict um because i think conflict is healthy i i, I don't think you can do what Absolutely. you need to do for each other it's, without it's it it's about how you resolve the conflict correct and, yeah yeah how so you kind of listen to each other and whether you're assume a good intentions within right. it as well. Right, right. So I found that to be one of the most pleasant and um, surprising parts of the book. Like it really is such a modern, I feel like modern fairy tale is almost like a fad <laughs> right now, you know, but, um, but it's always in the same way, you know, again, like, oh, the, we won't go into the, to the, to the, to the tropes that are happening. But this was, this really was in a sense, um, in a, in a different sense. And I, I appreciated it. I loved it. <laughs> oh, I I'm hope, so um, yeah, I, I, I mean, hope... I, I, I know it's so funny. Like, um, so when I was just sort of, uh, in the middle of writing the book, I was mm. I telling my agent that like, I'm really kind of consciously playing with like beauty bias concept in, yeah. in, in this book and yes yeah, obviously a... not to give away too much like you know Gortzai is not like the only love interest for Kada in a book mm -hmm. and you know Gortzai we we first see him as this kind of for like invalid yeah who is uh, really feeling sorry for himself and he's like really milking it for the attention and yeah. like you know and, and it's like you know and he's like a little bit overweight and he's got gout and he's like a bit lazy and it's like you know and so you're not supposed to um you know first meet him and think like hot you know right right <laughs> that, is, that is that that is kind of a point as well so it's like and there are some other characters who are very beautiful and when you meet them you you sort of have a sense like oh this is like the love interest this is the like attractive you know strong person and then you kind of maybe see um that that strength is not doesn't run very deep 
Mm. And yeah. that their strength of character is something that is revealed in crisis situations. And it's like, you know, at the end of the day, like, who can you actually trust? Who is actually going yeah. to stand by you? Yeah, this concept of trust was a bit, I know, I, I, I just such a... um yeah, such a theme, such a theme. And probably I I think I wrote in the question, like you presented that as almost like the highest ideal of the relationship. It was to come to mm. a point where you trusted each other, you know. Um I, I, I think it is. I think for, mm. you know, because but uh, I I'm not sure I even did it consciously, you know, like for, mm. for me personally, um I put a great deal of value in personal loyalty. That is something mm. that is um that is an absolute must hmm. for me in all my kind of personal relationships. I, I, this, this is really a benchmark against which I measure hmm. my relationships with people is, um, you know, and, and, and like even my view of, of, of strangers, you know, when I, there's, there's a bit of a trend when you see on social media people who have been like friends with someone and they've like kind of like, I don't know, if Twitter mob descends upon them for whatever stupid reason, mm. then they're like so quick to renounce their friends. Right. And they're so quick to then go turn around and be like, mm. oh, well, I was never really close to this person. Mm. I, I'm horrified that when they were right. 15, they held a view that is now unacceptable. Right, to right. And it's a just certain like you royal can't... couple that's thrown their family under the bus. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, you, you know, like, I mean, yeah, there's one thing of like, you know, you can express grievance, that's fine. Mm. And you can think, but when you have this sort of um especially for like self-serving reasons as in like right. you know, someone is like there was a, a right there was a kind of uh bookish scandal a couple years you know mm. a couple years back when a, a, a few men were accused of behaving very poorly um mm. and one of them who was like close friends with his group was so quick to be like, oh, well, I had never heard of it. This is disgusting. I'm not really friends with them anyway. And it's it's horrible. And I'm saying, and you're like, and everybody was like, yeah, we we all know you were there. Like how interesting. Like, and, and then even though we absolutely condemn the behavior of those other men, yeah. like, you know, would would you ever trust this person? you know on yeah. a personal level like you know oh how quick you are to yeah to be self-serving in a situation where you're right. need you are very like there's a saying by mark twain that i really love um mm. which is the the proper office of a friend is to stand with you where when you are in the wrong because almost anybody will stand with you when you are in the right wow I'm going to end up cutting this part out. Again, this is personal. I'm going to cut this out, but so many complications. So, okay, back to the, we're going to record, <laughs> we're going to record this part. Um, can you just tell us what you are working on now? Um, so I'm working on something quite different. Um, I can't say a lot yet. It's kind of like oh. a contemporary um, sort of supernatural thriller kind of thing. It's, oh, it's, I'm intrigued. <laughs> it's um, it's kind of... Uh, like it, it's more kind of like psychologically um disturbing in terms of like the um where like the main character being sort of put in a in a situation where she's kind of questioning her version of reality and her oh. perception of things but it's quite different and it's like contemporary 
Well, you definitely know how to hold attention. (laughs) So I'm very, I'm very excited to read that. Can you tell everyone where to find the Bone Roots and um, how to connect with you? Oh, so uh, I'm very easy to find. I'm (laughs) on um, GabriellaHouston.com. Hmm. uh on my website and there's like contact details if anybody wants to contact me i'm on instagram as at gabriella houston one hmm. uh because i also have the gabriella houston account but i lost look in details so now oh. i will forever be gabriella houston <laughs> one on instagram because of my own stupidity and that's so funny <laughs> it's just like i have no more passwords left in me sort of situation <laughs> And um, oh. yeah, and on Twitter, I'm Gabri- at Gabriella Houston because I managed to preserve the login detail somehow magically. Um, and the book is coming out the 10th of October and it will be available on order from pretty much everywhere. Like, you know, hopefully Barnes and Nobles in the States and I hopefully independence. I mean, I honestly do not know how you're distribution oh, I'm state. sure but mostly yeah. like so everyone's like Barnes and Noble but you also have lovely independent bookshops which I hope you yes. will all support and uh and on the on the UK side of course there's like you know the Waterstones and uh uh and again uh, I'm really big fan of bookshop.org um oh. uh, like bookseller.org no I think it's bookshop.org my god i'm saying i'm a big fan of something and uh yeah it's bookshop.org <laughs> okay. uh sorry uh, on the uk side it's uk.bookshop.org and it's uh basically you can order anything and it will i don't know how it uh selects but it sort of passes the order to uh, your local independent bookstores which like then sell it oh they kind of so you just it's very easy you just order the book from the bookshop.org people but mm-hmm. uh it they has delegate. the benefit that it delegate it's delegated to independence that and is really it, cool it is like a great alternative to purchasing books from amazon mm-hmm. it's it basically really um allows you to support uh independent bookshops Okay, that's great to know. I will find that link and put it in the show notes for sure. Um, I'll put as many links as I can in the show notes and I'll I'll ask Caroline. I'm sure she'll have a lot of those for me also. So, um, Gabriella, I have enjoyed this conversation so much, um, as much as I enjoyed the book, really. Thank you so, Me so too. much. Me had, too. I had an amazing time, Becky. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. I hope you have um, really a great, a great day. And you too. Okay, let me, um, I'm, I'm going to stop recording, but uh, here, let me just stop recording. So I, um, are you saying that the book's not coming out till October 10th? Yes. Oh, okay. I was going to try to like double time getting this episode out, but it's okay if I do like um, the second to last week in September or even the last week in September then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, okay. Listeners, thank you again for listening to the end. I was just looking at my stats last week, and the thing I am the absolute proudest of is how many of you really do listen to the end of episodes. It's actually quite... 
uh, quite unheard of in the podcast world. And it means to me that you find these guests and their experiences and their stories as meaningful and as um, inspirational as I do. As always, I ask you, I beg you, I plead with you to leave us five-star review um, of the podcast in your favorite player. Also to subscribe to the Storied Recipe newsletter so that every Friday you will receive um, a version of the newspaper, a volume of the news, uh, newsletter, where you will um, hear about the latest episodes, the featured episodes, the featured recipes, and also weigh in on future episodes of the Storied Recipe podcast, who and what you would like to hear about. I think that's it, and I hope you have a great week, my friends.